Welcome listeners. Uh, I'm Larry Woodard and this is Admire, where each week it's my privilege to have a conversation with an outstanding guest from business, sports, entertainment, education. Today it's my privilege to be with master photographer Mike Jones. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you for having me, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. One of life's great mysteries is how you put something in the hands of great talent and how it's transformed from its pedestrian use into something magnificent. Kobe with a basketball, Emerald Lagasse with a few ingredients in a stovetop, Tiger Woods with a golf club, and I would add Mike Jones with a camera. Thank you, Larry. That's very kind. I, I feel that the camera is an extension of your vision, and it's something that you can document and record life as you see it. And the idea that you can look through it and create what you see in your mind, I, I find astounding. It's my goal each time to just draw out that hidden piece of passion out of everyone and put it into the Well, uh, I would say that you know, and uh, and somehow I think that even if I internalize what you just said, that your pictures and my pictures would still look uh, markedly different. Uh, but you uh, you have a storied and well-documented background working in the music and advertising industry, shooting everything from album covers to magazine ads. But I want to start at the beginning. How did you first get a camera in your hands, and when did you fall in love with photography? I, I fell in love with photography in a very simple way. My brothers, Greg and Paul, had cameras. They were interested in it. They wanted me to hang out with them. And I found that I was actually very good at it. And I, and I found that this was something where people actually did this as a career. And I started meeting people, and the more people I met that had the ability to help, they actually did help. And they introduced me to people, and they did things that were astounding. And, and one of the first things that was really a big help and really put me at ease was I had an opportunity to shoot for Essence Magazine, Sammy Davis Jr., and a friend of mine, her mother, was friends with his father. And she told him that I was going to be shooting his son. And so Senior called Junior, and then Junior called me and said, why don't you come over and meet me the day before so you'll be calm and relaxed. And I went to his house, I met him, I took some pictures. And then the next day when I went, everything went so smoothly because I already knew him, I was already comfortable. And it's just... People helping each other has been the greatest asset throughout my whole career. That's uh, that, that's really interesting. So when you first started out, what, what equipment were you using? I first started out with a 35-millimeter camera, and I started adding on from the standard 50-millimeter lens to the 50, to the wide lenses, to the longer lenses, and then... The, the idea of that was just really learning what each perspective did and how it changed the look and mood and shape of the image. And then from there, I went to the Hasselblad system and got the larger format and was able to bring what that brought to the image. Because remember back when I started, album covers were 12 by 12 square. And then the image from a hospital was a square. So it was perfectly fitted and suited for, for what I wanted to do. And that helped me grow. And then learning the different lighting systems and the color balance and ratios of the lights, the strobes, the different types of strobes, 
the hot lights that they use on movie sets, the uh, intensity of the lights, and how you can add, subtract light, block light, add light, and create the light. And just like when Colby would turn around and go up with the ball from behind his back, it's like bending the light like that. So, so it. So from yeah. a seminal standpoint, like so, so you took this picture of Sammy Davis Jr. and I guess even getting that gig is a story in and of itself. But at what point were you really? Uh, did you really arrive? Did you really start being the photographer that people called when they wanted those those special shots shot of celebrities for magazines and album covers? When I really arrived was after I shot Chico the Barge for Motown Records. I shot Chico the Barge, and it was the first imagery of him. And before uh, the term everyone uses now is content, it was just we would populate the magazines that were in the grocery store that the, the teenagers would buy and the young girls would buy. The different teen B, teen, there, there were several of them at the time. And the goal was to take pictures that each magazine had a different set of pictures, different clothes, different background, that sort of thing. So I spent two days with him, and I was able to populate all the magazines. Then after that, Motown called, and they asked me if I would shoot this young man named Giorgio. He was a brilliant guitar player, and he had a... a the record is going very well in the charts. And I shot him. And then I went to Tower Records on Sunset in Los Angeles. And the covers I'd shot for both of them and the magazine pieces were on the outside of the building. They would put the latest album covers on the outside of the building. And those images were on the outside of the building when I drove in. That's when I knew I made it because I was on the building at Tower Records. Wow. And uh, having driven that way several times, I could imagine how that was really heady. Um, so um, what did the group of photographers that were doing the kind of work that you were doing look like at the, in those days? Were there, you know, the guy that everybody was chasing or were there a group of guys who were, who were all equally there or, or just describe it to me? Within within the circle of competition where we were, there were there were a, the, there were a couple of guys on the west coast, and then there was a significant guy on the east coast. And more than chasing, it was who was able to break barriers, who was able to get in, and instead of it being adversarial is more of I just talked to this person and I just got this project uh, what do you guys think about it? So there's a lot of open communication within the, the group of people that were making it into this elite circle and that I think was a, the most help of all because I was able to learn from them they were, they were able to say no, try this try this Think about this way. Think about this way. And the other thing that really helped was having an understanding of music 
and having played music as a young person, I would immerse myself in the sound. So when they say, you're going to shoot Elder Barge, I would listen to his album over and over and over all day. And so having those friendly contacts and those conversations and being able to take all of that and put it together is what really helped. So you've taken uh, what I consider to be some iconic um, uh, pictures, uh, iconic photographs from, from, from that era. Um, talk to me about the three or four images that you're most proud of. The ones I'm most proud of? Yep. I, I would say I'm most proud of getting a shot of Miles Davis head on because what I didn't know was that Miles Davis was an extraordinary player the guy was so cutting edge he cut the edge of the edge right but what I didn't know was he would play with his back to the to the audience and Warner Brothers Records had a party the day before and I went to the party, and I was supposed to take a picture of the president, Mo Austin, President Warner Bros. Records, with Miles Davis. Miles locked himself in the room with his wife at that time, Cicely Tyson. He locked himself in the room, and he wouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. I snuck in a room and asked her if she would take a picture for me, because I had to have a picture of somebody, or they were going to say, this whole thing was a waste of time and nothing would go forward for the next day as well. Right. So after a lengthy exchange of unpleasantries with him directed at me, we, we came to an agreement and he told me show up early to the venue the next day, a man will come find you. So I show up early, man comes find man says, watch the bass player. He's going to give you a cue. Make sure you're counting, because if you don't count, you're not on beat, you're going to miss. All the photographers were on the left side of the stage. Halfway through the uh, beginning of the set, where you're allowed to take photographs. Bass player gives me a sign. I go to the other side. Miles turns around in front of the other guys, walks away, walks over to me, walks off stage, walks up to me and says, did you get the picture? I said, yes, sir. He said, good, and I said, I'm listening to music. So that, that was a great story. Uh, another thing that was really ingenious was we were doing the Soul Train Awards, and we needed a picture of Nicole Richie for some advertising that was to promote another show. And there was no place to photograph her without her walking across the entire Paramount lot, which was an impractical thing to do. So what I did is I put a freight elevator out of service. I dressed it, created a studio inside a freight elevator, took her out the door, put her in the elevator, took the pictures, made the ad. So I'm very proud of that because that was just a stroke of genius to figure out how you can make a studio anywhere. Yeah, those are both absolutely uh, favorites of mine as well. Uh, uh, so let's let's jump a little bit and uh, and talk about uh, now. So we're deep into what 
business writers call digital transformation. Cameras and telephones, miracle working image software, photography and video is ubiquitous and ever present. How's that changed the nature of what you do and who you do it for? I, I think it's changed the nature of what we do and how it's done. But I think at this level, you can't change it. You can change it through technology, but you should not change how you approach it. And I still approach it the same way. How am I going to get the most out of the subject? How am I going to get the most out of the scene? How am I going to make it appropriate for what the end use is? Because we still have to remember, what is our end use? What is, what is our purpose? Is this going to be in a museum? Is it going to be in a magazine? Is it going to promote a product, uh, be it a record, uh, television, any type of physical thing. The difference here is that accuracy plays a big part. And I actually think people like myself who have been doing it a long time, this is a, we're better suited for it than the people who are just now coming to it who grew up with the technology because we grew up understanding and we've been working in the field understanding how to make a creative expression and not relying on the computer to fix it or the camera to adapt it for us or any of those kind of things. I, I still I still approach the camera with I'm controlling the settings. I'm controlling the angles, I'm controlling the lens, I'm controlling every aspect of it. But it's just now, we can show the client in real time just by looking at the back of the camera or putting it on the computer immediately. We could, we could show the client in real time what they have so they can go over it and make decisions immediately. That's uh, that, that clarifies a lot for me in terms of, you know, the professional photographer versus the versus the amateur versus the person just trying to get the right image. You know, so so that explains that when I look at the 50 years of great photographers and I look at people like Gordon Parks and Diane Arbus and Maple Thorpe and Annie Leibovitz, um, how that skill, composition, technique, emotional impact just can't be denied. Um, but. I have another question that's a little bit more um, perspicuous, and that is that um, this photography revolution that we're in, everybody believing that on some level that they're a photographer, and as a matter of fact, spending a lot of their time taking photographs, is this ultimately good or bad for photography in general and professional photographers specifically? I think, I think it's good and bad. I think the bad part is there are a lot of unqualified people that think they're a professional. And that's bad because they don't, they don't understand what they're doing and they don't understand when something's good, why is it good? And when something's bad, why is it bad? And they also don't understand the, the back end things that go into it. 
such as the permits, the crew staffing, the, just the things that bring production value and client ease into the picture. Simple things, uh, like I was talking with a creative buyer, and she said, we did a project in the desert, and it was so hot, the photographer decided to send an assistant out to buy bandanas for everybody so everybody could put something cool on their neck. Now, I said, how many motorhomes did you have? Mm-hmm. She said, there was one motorhome. I said, how many, how, many, how many people were on the crew? How many people came from the agency? And when I got the number of how many people, then I turned and I said, well, I think the problem is not that it was hot. You were going to the desert. You knew it was going to be hot. But no one thought that maybe there should be three motorhomes instead of two, a place the client can sit, a place where hair and makeup could happen, and then a place where the computer tech can set up to keep the equipment cool. So those are things that hurt the profession, and they cheapen it. Because when I'm bringing a bigger staff so everybody can be safe and comfortable, I'm bringing more motorhomes. I'm getting the permits. I'm going to make sure we have a cop, a doctor, a school teacher, whatever is necessary for the safety. The people that just pick up a camera, take it out of the box and say, hey, look at me. I'm a professional. Or, hey, look, I push play. Now I'm a filmmaker. It, it, that, that's cheaping in it. Yeah, and that's the part that's distressing. I, I I totally agree with you. I, I had a recent experience um, in Nashville where uh, we were hired to to film a um, a sizzle reel for a professional musician. So we had okay. three fixed cameras uh, and a cameraman with a stabilizer rig to get some interesting angles, um, you know, during the performance during the concert. And the thing that we didn't account for that turned out to be the biggest issue of the night was everybody had a cell phone. And not only did they have cell phones, so you didn't get interesting shots. If you shot from the stage, all you had was hundreds of people with cell phones pointed at the stage. Right. But um, you actually had people trying to do what the professional photographer was doing. So they were trying to pan the stage, and they were you know, getting through security and walking around and trying to get close-ups and doing all that stuff. And they're in the professional shots. So the so the musician is spending thousands of dollars to have a professional crew to take very high resolution. The sound's going directly into the board. We're using Pro Tools, so the sound's going to be perfect. All these things are going to be great. And the whole thing is lessened and cheapened and and sort of, quite frankly, messed up by the fact that you have a whole bunch of amateurs trying to capture the same thing, you know, in a way that will not be professional and, um, you know, the lighting would be off because it was actually dark there with stage lighting. Um, and so I look at something like that and and I wonder where all this is going. I went to a Chris Rock concert and saw where Chris has everybody put um, their cell phones inside of these uh, these bags and then they get them on their way out. You know, so a lot of people do that. But overall, you know, this army of people with cell phones, which I guess is great for a revolution, you know, um, sometimes is in the way? I, I would agree. I would agree. One of the things, 
that I implemented when I worked for Don Cornelius and we had the the award shows. We did the Soul Train Awards. We did the Lady of Soul Awards. We did a Christmas show. <clears throat> we did a fundraiser for Maxine Waters, which was a jazz show. And we, we did usually three of these big shows a year. And one of the things I implemented was a series of safe zones and platforms so that I could put photographers on risers the same way the uh, video photographers were. So you're above the heads and the hands of the people with the cell phones. So we had to implement secure locations to film from so that the interference from this sort of revolution uh, we can shoot around it and above it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that that helped a lot in terms of securing the positions and getting footage that was usable. Because we needed to get things inside and outside of the venue that were usable for promoting the shows all around the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, that was a unique thing. But I do agree that this is a revolution that is getting in the way of what needs to be done to properly promote and utilize the imagery. And we have to think of ways to get above it, get around it, get between it. We have to keep being creative in how we stage ourselves to make the production flow. Right. Because it can be overwhelming, especially in a large crowd, of how we do it and how it how it comes about. Mm -hmm. Listen, in the time that I've known you, Mike, uh, I've I've come to um, to really not only respect your um, your ability and your creativity, but also who you are as a person. You know, just uh, you know, two feet firmly on the ground with a lot of wisdom. Um, we're living in most interesting and at the moment actually frightening times right now. The COVID-19 pandemic threatens to change life as we know it permanently. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? My, my thoughts are it is going to change. And it, it is frightening. And, and thank you for your kind words. But I think the truth of it is it's it reminds me of a, a story I'm going to make very brief of when I was a little boy. My father's family had horses and, and they had a pony and I rode the pony and I kicked the pony. The pony ran out in the streets, scared me to no end as a little child. My father had to rescue me like in a Western movie. And the old man said, well, going down the pony? I said, no, Papa. I don't want to go near that thing. I was like, no, no, no. But he said, no, we're going to go on the pony. He said, you're going to sit down. I'm going to leave it around and you're going to enjoy this. He said, I want you to promise me one thing. He says, it's okay to have fear, but don't live your life where you're afraid. And I think that's where we are in this pandemic. We need to be concerned. We need to be cautious. We need to be safe. We need to have safe practices, safe thoughts, safe behavior. But we cannot be afraid to live. And I think going forward, as we talk about projects and we talk about 
who can be a client and, and who can we share our greater abilities with. Part of the messaging we need to show the clients and we need to show America is, yes, I'm concerned. Yes, I'm washing my hands again. Yes, I don't know if I'm going to shake everybody's hand again. However, I'm not going to be afraid to get on an airplane. I'm not going to be afraid to travel. I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to be afraid to create, to think, to to dream of what we could do and how we can get there. We have to go outside again. We have to get in the water again. We have to get back to being people that embrace everything that we have. We have to come back to it. Those but are, we have to take the, the steps yeah. slowly and cautiously. Great, um, great words, uh, and I greatly appreciate them. Uh, Mike, thank you for being my guest on Admire today. Thanks for having me, Larry. It's been my pleasure.